Welcome to the Travel Tales Podcast. The winners are the, the people with the most stories. One of the great things about traveling is the people that you meet. I've slept in bus stations, like yeah. I've slept on people's floors. And it's already on fire, and then there's just a gigantic, huge explosion, like out of a Hollywood movie. It's not right or wrong, it's just different. We hired like 10 Chinese prostitutes to come be our audience. We were kidnapped by nuns in Puerto Rico. <laughs> not a good idea to be high when you're packing. You forget a lot of stuff. I got swine flu. By the time you've lived through it, it's just a good story. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Travel Tales Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Siegel. My guest today is Bassam Tarazi. Before we get to Bassam, I want to give a few announcements. One, the website is TravelTalesPodcast.com. You can go there and see photos of our guests. You can see their links to all their sites and social media. You can see links to all our sites and social media. And that is, of course... Instagram, you can follow us on Instagram at Travel Tales Podcast. Twitter, it's Travel Tales Pod on Twitter. Uh, our Facebook page, there's a link to that. If you want to follow me and my showbiz stuff or see any of my reels and that kind of thing, that's over at funnymike.com. You can also follow me at funnymike on Twitter. If you want to subscribe to the Travel Tales Podcast, there are links on our page to Stitcher Radio and iTunes. And if we're on iTunes, I ask, as always, please give us a good rating because that boosts our presence there and helps more people find the show, and that's a cool thing. If you want to write me, it's TravelTalesPodcast at gmail.com. That's TravelTalesPodcast at gmail.com. And speaking of writing me, our guest today wrote me. I have said that it's a good way to get on the show if you have a great travel story or if you know someone you think would be great. Write me at TravelTalesPodcast at gmail.com and I'll see if I can get them on. And now with the power of Skype and everything else, I can, uh, not like it just got invented. Come on, Skype's been around for a while. But, you know, the technology is getting a little better. It has its ups and downs and... uh, I'm utilizing it more and more because it's widening my scope of people I can talk to, including today's guest. My guest today, Bassam Tarazi, has an interesting story that he'll tell you about right up front, but he goes from a background in engineering to writing three books, and his latest one is how his experience doing the Mongol rally across Asia kind of changed his life. And it's kind of interesting, first and foremost, that the Mongol rally has come up a couple times in the last few episodes. If you recall, a couple episodes ago, I spoke to a woman named Crystal Kelly, who was the horse trainer that lived in England. Well, we spent most of her episode talking about her life uh, training horses and living around the world. But we kind of glossed over the fact that she did the Mongol rally as well. uh, But she did it solo over 72 days. And if you click uh, on our link to her YouTube page, there's a lot of video that she has on it, and it's pretty incredible stuff. But looking back at my interview with Crystal, we didn't really talk about it that much, and I think mainly because the Mongol Rally is such a big deal, that was probably a whole separate show in itself. Well, now here's that separate show, but with a different person. (laughs) Bassam did the rally as well, but with two other people, and did it uh, over 30 days. So about half the time is uh, Crystal. I'm not, uh, you know, rubbing your nose in it there, Bassam, but uh, come on. Just kidding. I couldn't do it. Well, maybe I could, but uh, this is a rough, uh, rough thing to do. Driving a tiny crap car from London all the way to Mongolia. And Bassam's latest book, which is called Borders, Bandits, and Baby Wipes, is all about the Mongol rally and where he was in his life and how he used that adventure to take stock of where he was as a person, as a professional, and kind of reboot his life. It's a pretty cool story. And between Crystal and Bassam, they're almost talking me into doing this thing. I'm really thinking about it. Or maybe I can just take the easy way out 
and read Bassam's book. Either way, it was a pleasure to meet him, and I really enjoyed my time talking to him, and I think you're going to enjoy listening to him as much as I did. Please enjoy my conversation on Travel Tales with Bassam Tarazi. So give me your actually job title. What do you call yourself these days? Uh, these days, Mike, it's, <laughs> part of it is figuring it out. I, I did a lot of business strategy um, and, and people ops stuff uh, when I was in New York, but I've had my own consultancy. So I, I'm, I'm a little bit of, a, of an entrepreneur um, and strategist is probably the easiest uh, thing to say. This new book coming out is my third. So People have been calling me an author now, although that always feels awkward for me. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, I don't know if writers ever feel like they're authors or right. I don't know. It's a, it's a strange term to me. Well, tell me about the books and what were you doing in your previous life that led to the writing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so my background is uh, in mechanical engineering. And then um, I got into nuclear engineering for the Navy uh, as my first job at a school. And so that was just kind of a, a foray into an interesting life uh, to say the least. And I was always, I was always writing on the side in college. I penned a couple screenplays, did some sketch comedy, uh, with a bunch of guys, uh, from college. So, uh, when I was living in Southern California for a while, there were a few outlets that, you know, I wrote for just on the comedy writing and that kind of thing. And so I really enjoyed it, but my kind of deep foray into blogging and then consulting and self-publishing my first book was, uh, I really found, a a gulf of accountability, I think, just in a lot of the business world. I think it was so easy for people to schluff accountability. And it was just something that, you know, over email, oh, well, I emailed and I said and I thought and I asked, I don't know, it's not my fault. And I just was like, shit, we need to be more accountable for ourselves and for the world around us and all that kind of stuff. So I wrote this book called The Accountability Effect. And uh, it got it was one of those things that when when the right person blogs about it, your life kind of changes. I don't know if you know Seth Godin, um, but he's like the the father of marketing, of, of modern marketing. And he ended up blogging about it. And that kind of changed my trajectory. Then my blog about uh, behavioral psychology, why people do what they do, getting things done, being accountable kind of took off a little bit. And then I started taking on clients and speaking at companies and universities and all that kind of stuff. So um, the first book was just to prove to my readers and listeners, like, you don't need permission. Permission has already been granted because you live in America at this time of, of plenty and you need to just dive in. The second book was, um, it's called In Five Years You'll Be Wrong. And it's basically a life lessons book, mostly for the college uh, student. I just felt like there was a lot of kids I was talking to who were just lost and they were trying to figure out how they solved their life when they were 19 or 20 years old and how do you figure it out. And In Five Years You'll Be Wrong was one of the lessons, but it's just kind of like, look, you don't know where you're going. You just have to paddle in a cardinal direction. And over the horizon, an uh, island or an iceberg will come up and you change directions, but there's no way to predict all the changes. This latest book is the first one that I've gotten published, like I uh, had an editor and a publisher and all that kind of stuff. And I've been, you know, an explorer my, my whole life. I was a co-founder of the Nomading Film Festival, which we, which we had for a couple of years uh, that was on the East Coast and then also in Portland. Um, so I, I like storytelling. I like traveling. I like being vulnerable. I like throwing caution to the wind. So this book is about my trip on the Mongol rally in 2014. And at the time, I was at a grand crossroads of what I wanted to do professionally, whether it was consult, whether it was to go back and work full time, and uh, what was my purpose, what was I doing, and all that kind of stuff. So 
uh, loving logistics, I put together this trip, you know, 11 months of planning. I got my two teammates and um, I don't know if you know about the rally, but in essence, you have to take a one liter engine um, yeah. size car. Yeah, one liter, one, one liter engine or smaller car from London to Alain Batar. I know um, I've had a couple of friends who've done it before. Got it. Uh, got it. I've, I've heard about it. It's, uh, but that's not the one you got to take. Like, I mean, when you say one liter, I mean, this is, it's, are these junky it's cars? Are these, are yeah, these? yeah. Oh, yeah. We had a 1997 Daihatsu Move. Oh, my 42, God. 42 horsepower. Uh, 42? 42. 850 cc. I mean, it was. Doesn't a uh, moped could, have more power? You could pro- yes, yes. You could probably, like, stop it. If, like, you stood in front of it and, like, leaned forward, you might be able to, like, hold it back. Uh, and there was, three, there was three of us in there. And, you know, it really was. Like, and we had to figure out, as Americans, figure out how to procure a car in Britain, get it registered, get it insured, and then needing to get certain visas and all that kind of stuff. So you can imagine it was most of the trip was logistics for almost a year. And then the trip itself was, you know, a little over five weeks. Um, does this book have a name yet? This book does. Yeah. It's called borders, bandits and baby wipes, borders, um, bandits and baby wipes. Okay. That's right. So let's, let's, that's right. let's go back. <laughs> Got and, it. uh, first of all, about the comedy thing, where did you, uh, did you perform in like LA? No, and stuff? Maybe I know some of these people. No, no, it was, it was just, uh, on the, co- on the, on the comedy writing front. There was a few, it, it was, I, I felt like in LA, I was like the one step away from really getting my break. There was a few, um, we all feel uh, that way all day long, yeah, by the way. Literally there was this, the, the big break I almost had was, um, I don't know if you remember the show 24. Yeah, I was um, on it. I did the, an episode on the first season. Yeah. Get out of here. So I was literally, I had a, uh, this agent, uh, his name is bird. I don't know if, if you know bird. I think he's, that's his first name. He's, no. he's, he's in New York now. Anyway, um, I wrote for this website called the fat free P H A T, uh, P H R E E back in like the early, the mid aughts. It was kind of like this social comedy website, uh, that, that did pretty well. And I met a guy through there and he said, Hey, you're, you're a really great writer. Um, uh, Fox is having this, this, uh, pitch to write like the CTU handbook. Like if, if there was a CTU handbook, what would it be kind of thing? Um, and so I pitched it, I pitched mine and Fox, I, I saw the, the back and forth with, with, with Fox and my agent and they, they wanted to pick me, but they had no idea who I was. Like, who is this guy? And they ended up going with the husband and wife team that they knew. Um, yeah. So that was kind of that was kind of one thing. Uh, and then I had this website called Bro What the Fuck B R O W T F. And I <laughs> once a day, I kind of basically took a ridiculous news story that was on CNN or MSN or something like man loses hand while wrestling a python or so, whatever it was. Like just looking at the human condition and and saying you know what in the world is going on. So I written a couple of screenplays. I'm working on a pilot right now. Just like, I really enjoy the writing, the writing side of things. So, um, that's kind of where I just, yeah, where, where my creative alley went was, uh, what's through writing. Right. So, so let's get back uh, to the Mongol rally. Yes. So sir. what year are we talking? You did this 2011, this 2000, 2014, 2014. 2014. So you're yep. married at this point. I was not, I was single. Um, but you knew your sing- wife. Future one. I did no. I did not know her yet. Wow, this moved fast then. Yeah, it did, it did move fast. I mean, she's. I'm 37. She's about to be 38. When we met in New York, I think it was one of those times we met two years ago where we just kind of. It was like one of those. Like I knew I wanted to meet some. I was ready to kind of right. meet somebody, and as was she. And I think at that a little bit older age, you just everything is just, is is so much easier. You're not trying to prove a zillion things to each other and right. to yourself and all that kind of stuff. So no, I was. Uh, 
I was single, and this was kind of like, I think I heard about the Mongol rally in 2009 or 10. So I knew about it, and it's one of those trips I say it in the book. I go, the Mongol rally is one of those trips that 100% of your friends say they'd love to do. But when it comes to, when it comes down to it, everybody says they do it next year, right? right? It's always that thing. Oh no no no! I, this year maybe you know next year let's do it. And I'm one of those guys who it's kind of like if I waited for my friends to be ready to do the trips I wanted to do, I wouldn't go anywhere. Yeah, so, that's one of the reasons why. I mean, I always say that on the show that if I waited for people to go places with, I never would have gone. So never. That's never. how you learn to tra- travel alone, and you know <laughs> and you learn exactly. To but this exactly. is a big I, commitment, though. I mean, this is th- this like, was a bit. This was a big commitment, and I, I I remember the day where I signed up. It was something like eight hundred fifty bucks, or maybe like a thousand dollars. You have to pay to to sign up a team, and so I said. I signed up for a team I didn't uh, have and a car I didn't own. You know, it was, I was just, I was leaping. I was leaping right. in August and I said, I'm sure I'll find, you know, two people. I've traveled enough and, and I'll be able to find people. It, it took me a while. It took me a while. Like I, I, it was like, I wouldn't say third tier friends, but they weren't the immediate friends that I had <laughs> thought of. Uh, you, had to, you had to go to the to B and C with. list. Yeah. I, yeah. I had to go to the B and C list. Like one of my, it was uh, my buddy Greg from college. Uh, who's, I mean, ended up being an absolute wonderful, wonderful teammate and the perfect person to have there. And then my friend, Brooke, who I didn't really know that well, like Brooke and I were kind of acquaintances and she, uh, she's a really tough girl. She's well-traveled and, and she really wanted to do it. She's a bit of a gearhead. She knows more about cars than I do. So I was like, all right, like, well, that's just, what I was thinking. Just, I don't know what your experience with, I mean, like, I would need a mechanic with me because oh, I don't know I'm, anything about I'm cars. negative. Like I can fill my gas and right. like work the windshield wipers. Greg had like rebuilt car engines before so that and oh, okay. he's six foot three and it was one of those things where i was like all right he's kind of a strong guy i was like greg yes i, I i'm recruiting yeah. you you're in charge of this vehicle so so we did have that we did have the i was in charge of kind of logistics uh and fundraising greg was in charge of uh the website and the car uh w- when we got the car brooke uh, was actually in charge of, of procuring the car figuring out where we were going to get this car and all that kind of stuff so, so you get to london you start this out and you, yep. have to, you have to buy a car. You bought it in London. We bought it in London, uh, and we never even saw it. I had to get my cousin to go drive it to make sure it like worked and there were brakes. How much so was the car? The car was, I believe, fourteen hundred or fifteen hundred dollars. And then we had to put in more money. We had to put more money in the car to get it like street ready. Like it needed a new clutch. It needed new brakes. Right. Um, you know all that kind of stuff. But I think it was like yeah, it was about fourteen hundred dollars. So the the rally itself. Yes. Is it, uh, you know, people think the Mongol rally, you think in four wheeling through a desert, but is it roads or is it, I mean, how much, you know, how it, much can so, this car handle? So here's the, the, the situation with the rally is uh, the adventurous, the guys who, who, who throw the rally, they're pretty great. They pretty much say it needs to be a one liter engine or smaller and you just need to get to Alain Batar. If one wanted, I, you know, I call it like if you wanted to be a plastic pioneer and drive through Russia on perfect roads and pop down into uh, Ulaanbaatar, you could, right? But then it's kind of like, well, what's the point of that? Uh, right. So most people make the decision the Caspian Sea becomes your, uh, your cross point. And so most people, they'll go through Europe, uh, through Turkey, and then Georgia, Azerbaijan, and then you have a decision to make. If you go north around the Caspian, you need a dual entry Russian visa, which is just a little bit more complicated to get. If you go oh. south, you have to go through Iran, which is is complicated because you need a carnet and there's just a lot of things like basically you have to 
account for every item that is in your car when you enter. You have to it has to be when you come out. We were three Americans. Oh, right. It was just it was a time of you know it was like do we need to do this? So we chose to go across the Caspian on like an industrial ferry into Turkmenistan, which had obviously its own challenges. Um, but that was the route we chose. So we kind of went through all of the stands, you know, Turkmenistan and Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, wow. Kazakhstan. Yeah, that that part of the world. So so the roads basically how it works is. Uh, Europe, obviously you're, you're fine. Pretty much all of Turkey, you're fine. Um, it really just starts getting hairy, uh, in parts of Turkmenistan and then until Ulaanbaatar. Uh, (laughs) so you're on, I would put air quotes roads in certain places, but they have been so dilapidated that it would be better if it was just dirt because the potholes, you know, you you basically are just hitting potholes that could basically seppuku your car, especially our tiny little thing. So that became, that was the exhausting part of the trip is Google maps was never to be trusted. It would say, Oh, it'll take you 10 hours and it takes 15, you know, so you're driving at night with like these exhausted headlights that can't pierce through anything. And you're just waiting for this Sarlacc, you know, from (laughs) star Wars to just, to just eat, eat your car. So how long Um, does this whole thing take? So it took us, it, you know, some people, if they blitzkrieg, you know, again, through Northern Europe and they go through Russia, they could do it in two weeks. Um, we did it in 35 days. Um, wow. Yeah, th- 33 and th- uh, 35 days. And, and there were only two days where we didn't drive. Uh, so we spent an extra night in uh, Budapest and an extra night in Istanbul, just two cities we kind of wanted to check out. Two, Other than that, two cool it's cities. Like, oh, fantastic, fantastic cities. Other than that, it was probably an average of like 11 to 12 hours a day. And that obviously leads to, you know, yeah. uh, a lot of things, <laughs> exhaustion uh, and, yeah, and all that kind of stuff. So is it a race per se or is it? No, is it, it, no, they're very, they're very clear on that. I think legally they're clear on that. They don't, it's not like a cannonball run kind of thing. It's mostly you're on your own kind of thing. Um, yeah. But there's no, there's no prize for finishing first. I think if, I think whoever finishes first, most people would tell that person you didn't do it right, right. you know, because okay. you were you were here too quickly. It's, um, so give me some of the uh, the highlights and lowlights of some of this. First of all, give me some of the scariest things, serious situations <clears throat> you found yourself in. Uh, scary situations were uh, in Azerbaijan. It was a it, it was known, you know, the, the joke is that in Azerbaijan, you're basically just an ATM for the police in Azerbaijan uh, in Kazakhstan. And those are the. You know, those are the two places we were worried about. In Azerbaijan, we, in a one and a half mile, I'm not making this up, maybe one and a half, two mile stretch, we were pulled over three times by three different groups of people. The last one was essentially a drugged out bandit um, who was, we don't know what he was on, but he was like very aggressive, demanding money from us. And we had just gotten kind of fleeced twice. So the dangerous situation was we didn't want to give in because we just felt like, my God, we just got, right. had to pay these other cops right now. But this guy was getting very aggressive, very touchy. He was holding my passport so we couldn't leave. Um, and so and then we were arguing in the car and this guy was trying to reach into our pockets and all this kind of stuff. And then you have that moment where you're like, I joked to my friend, I said, the <laughs> wars have been fought because somebody doesn't want to be somebody's bitch, you know, <laughs> where you're kind of like, I don't give a shit. I don't care if I get fired. I don't like the way this person's talking to me. You know, like you're willing to go to that level. And we kind of, we had that crossroad there. I was like, I don't know if this guy has a gun or a knife or, or what, like how far are we willing to go here to, de- 
to defend ourselves. Um, that, that was a low, that was just a very, very low day. Well, how'd um, you get out of it? So w- we got out of it because he was, he spoke negative amounts of English. It seemed like it got less of it. He was just screaming money, money, money right. now, now, now. And, and Brooke, God bless her in the moment, in the heated moment, cause she was in the back seat. She finally said, Brooke, call the embassy. And I, and we noticed when we pulled into Azerbaijan, there's a poster that says like they're trying to cut down on corruption and called this number. So I think when she said the word embassy, there was something in that changed in this guy's kind of like demeanor. We didn't know the embassy's number. We didn't have working cell phones, but Greg just took out the phone and pretended to dial a number and pretended to talk to somebody on the other line. And the guy just got really skittish. And I, we, I think we ended up having to, at that point, we, 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 we strung him along for like 40 bucks. Uh, or that we, we had given him 40 bucks. Uh, and then so he threw my passport basically in the car and just sprinted back to his car. So that was that. The next day was equally as stressful because how the Turkmenistan visa works is that it's a five-day transit visa and it's date-specific. So what that means is we couldn't really get the Turkmen visa when we were in London because we had no idea when we would be in Turkmenistan. So the only embassies, the only countries that have embassies for Turkmenistan were going to, the cities were going to be London, Berlin, Istanbul, and Baku, Azerbaijan. We couldn't do it in Istanbul because it was aid uh, that holiday uh, right after Ramadan. So we had to wait to get to Baku. And the Turkmen embassy is down an alleyway and there's only two people that work there. Uh, no joke. And when you get <laughs> there, you, no one speaks English. So you had to hire, we had to hire this fixer. Uh, and you basically have to go get new passport photos. You have to deposit money in an Azerbaijan, in a Turkmen bank. Um, you have to open up an account, literally like all this crazy stuff. And so we ended up getting this long story short, we ended up getting this five day visa, but our fixer, he was handling where we had to meet and, and, um, uh, meet this industrial ferry, but he, 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 protected his information quite dearly. And um, he, basically we lost him. We, there was a long story of why we got separated from him and we couldn't get a hold of him. And so we had a ticking, we now had our visas, but we didn't know where the boat was. Um, and so that was a very hairy situation. We finally, finally found this port, but then upon checking out, Greg had lost his Azerbaijani visa that they needed to stamp out before we could get on the ship. Oh. And so what, what proceeded was, and the guy, the guy was literally like, great. Like I, I wanted to name my book, um, can't stamp phone because Brooke and I got our things that, you know, stamped out. Greg did it. We were coming up with all these plans of how we would get around it. And Greg said, look, I must've lost it, but I have it on my phone. And the guy just looked at his phone and handed it back goes, can't stamp phone. Um, and so we had to go <laughs> to this tiny outhouse of an office and convince this Azerbaijani guard who was eating like noodles and watching a TV show on his computer if we could use his printer. Because um, Greg had it on his phone, he had a finicky USB connection, and the computer was in Windows Azerbaijan. The stevedores were yelling at us saying the boat has to leave, and I'm yelling at them, the boat is fucking staying, we're not fucking leaving until we print this piece of paper out. So it was like this... 30, 45 minute ordeal to try to get this. And we couldn't read Azerbaijani, obviously. And this guy didn't want to help us. And we finally figure out how to print this visa that this guy stamps. And we get on this boat, like right, right as it, as oh, it leaves. Um, yeah. So that, I mean, that, that was like a 48 hour period where 
I'm telling you, Mike, I said, and I go, I aged like five years in the last two. And, oh, and the other thing is, is we didn't eat that next day. We didn't have dinner the night before. Breakfast, we couldn't eat, so we had to go to the, there was like all these things that we hadn't really eaten. So you're just, you're inhuman at that point. It's a hundred something degrees. Um, you're wondering why you're there. You're wondering why you travel at all. You know, you're wondering what the fuck am I doing? <laughs> was that the um, point? Was that the point where you were just like, you know what? Maybe we call this thing. Uh it, what got close was if we couldn't have found Ishmael, we literally had no record. We could not get our car. We couldn't go through Russia. We couldn't go through Iran. And this visa was now a ticking clock. And we didn't know when the next boat would have left. So it might it might have been game over at that point. Or we would have had to get on the boat and Greg would have had to fly and meet us in like Uzbekistan in a few days or something like that because his visa um, issue. Um Turkmenistan and Uzbekistan were, were, I mean, they were, obviously there was so many, so many glorious moments and really it was the people that made, made it so friendly. I think I remember the, the state I remember the most when I came home was someone said, my God, Basam, you did this amazing trip. How did you do it? You know, blah, 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 blah. And they said, well, weren't you afraid? I said, afraid of what? And they said, afraid of them. And that was a big, you know, my God, us Americans, like who, who is they, who is this mysterious them that one should be afraid of? And the kindness that was poured out to us by people who who didn't need to give it, you know, or who had nothing to give and gave us everything they had was almost debilitating to me. Like I, I was it was so hard to process that Bedouin sense of hospitality that happens. And, you know, I'm half Palestinian and, and you know, just in that part of the world when people like helping thy neighbor or the stranger or whatever it is, um, people would go to lengths that that were very, very. Very impressive. Did, um, most, did most of the people you came across, did they know what the Mongol rally was? I mean, were they even hip to no, it? Or? You know what's funny? It's like you would think that I, it was hard because of the language barrier, the constant language barrier um, in a lot of places. I, I would say the majority, the majority know. They were like, who are these crazy people? But I think there was this sense of pride in these off-the-beaten-path places in Uzbekistan or wherever. We were in Kyrgyzstan at this reservoir. We met these locals, and they're like, you're Americans? Like, from New York, Miami, San Diego? Like, what are you doing in our town? And I think they were so amazed and thankful and wanted to, like, show off their town and, and you know, all that kind of stuff. So, no, I, I kind of – there were a few places that kind of know that the rally comes through every year, a lot of the ports, so a lot of the – you know, a lot of the customs agents and all those kind of things, they kind of know in the summertime there are these ridiculous cars that come through, you know. But for the most part, the locals know. They, they don't – they look at you like you're, you're, you're from, the, from the Andromeda galaxy. You know, they're just yeah. like, well, give, what, what are you doing? Well, give me an example of one of those uh, positive moments that were like kind of life-changing. Oh, yeah. No, I mean I could – there's, there's, there's a handful. Um, I'll, I'll, there's a few. So I, I could say in short, one was in Germany. We broke down. We had lost an engine mount bolt. I mean, no country, no better country to break down than in Germany. And we oh, kind of yeah. limp. We, we limp into this um, mechanic. And the woman, it was it was owned, by, I think, by a gentleman. And his daughter now essentially ran the thing. She was in her 40s. And she had a young daughter. And she was like, she turned into our mother. Like, she was so concerned for us. She's like, what's like 16,000 kilometers? She's like, shite. Like, what? what are you doing? Do your mothers know where you are? You know, you're in Germany, your car's already falling apart. You're not getting to Mongolia. She fixed our car for free and we tried to give her money. She said, absolutely not. She's like, I'm not going to take your money. And then she gave us 50 euros for gas. And she, she had her daughter kind of walk with us to the gas station and like filled us up. 
on gas. And, I, and I'm just like, you know, and, and that stuff sticks with you. I, I still tell that story. In Uzbekistan, there was this guy who worked at our hostel who basically left his post at his front desk to help us find an ATM. So he had to call his boss and go, hey, these people need help because we couldn't find American dollars. And then negotiated, this is not his job. He, he drives us to the gas station and Uzbekistan has a gas shortage because they have a, uh, a disagreement with, with Turkmenistan. So it looks like the oil embargo of the 70s, like cars are lined up for you know quarter of a mile, if not longer. He negotiates, he runs up to the gas station and basically tells all the gas attendants that, hey, I need to get these guys in here, these Americans, you know, they're unfortunately they need to go. And he's up there arguing, you know, trying to get us. People are, you know, getting upset on the road and, and he negotiates our way to basically fill up gas without us getting killed. And we, of course, go to tip him. And he said, no, 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 like, you don't tip me. This is this is what, the, you know, you're in my country. This is this is, you know, whatever, you know, you can pay it forward. Um in uh, uh, in Russia, these two college kids, college kids on a Saturday, saw us driving around, and they're like, "Where are you going? Like, what, what you know, what are you doing here?" Oh my God, we're looking for lunch. We're looking for Wi-Fi, and, they, and they're like, "Come eat with us." And so they take us to this place. They tell us about their town. Uh, it was amazing food. We ended up we ended up splitting the lunch, and then they said, "Hey, would you mind if we toured you around our city? We'd love to show you our 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 city, like that we're proud of." And they took us around gave us an unbelievable tour, and then they bought us a bottle of vodka, like a bottle of local vodka. And again, these are college kids. They don't have any money. Like, they gave up their <laughs> whole Saturday, like three and a half hours on their Saturday to host us, essentially. And and it just, there's at least three or four more. You know, I, I could, you know, um, there was this guy in, in, in Kyrgyzstan. We just, you basically, when you're camping, so we camped half the time. We were in hostels or, or hotels the other half. Mostly, obviously, the more east you go, the more camping. And we were just on this land in the mountains, maybe at like 10,000 feet, cold night by this brook. We don't know if it's somebody's land. Anyway, wake up in the morning and we're, we're, you know, we're making our little stove, we're heating our coffee and this truck (laughs) pulls up and I'm like, of course, I'm like, oh shit, we're in trouble, right? Of course I go to the defensive and negative, like, oh, these people are mad at us. This guy in his like 60s and his wife, late 60s, get out of the truck, say absolutely nothing. No words are spoken. He gets out. He has a thermos and he just points at his thermos and points at us. And we're like, um, okay, I think he's offering us a drink. And he just points at his thermos again and we bring out cups. He nods his head yes. And we pour us all like five, you know, five cups of whatever he's drinking. It was like fermented yak milk. We don't even know what it was. And then we drink it. He cheers us. We drink it. And then he just looks at us. So we're like, I think we need to give him something. So Greg makes our coffee, gives him, you know, this, this cup of coffee and he drinks it and then just like leaves. Like there was no... It was just the sense of, hey, you're a traveler, you're here, let's quote unquote break bread. You know what I mean? And it was just right. this silent moment. We didn't speak. Um, and there was a lot of, there was just, there was a lot of that. I think I talk about the bell curve of relatedness that happens when you travel. What, I'm, what I mean by that is when we travel, I think we yearn for, let's call it the, the bleeding edge of the bell curve of experience, these new experiences, these things that we've never had before in these new lands. And yes, we're having those experiences. But then on the other end of the bell curve, we can oftentimes we're relating on things like food, shelter and water with people there. So it's like, here I am on this crazy, crazy experience. And oh, my God, I'm thirsty. And oh, my God, I'm hungry. But these people literally don't speak English and there's no menu and they're just looking at us. So you got to pat your tummy. You got to point at your mouth, you know, and then you end up getting 
the greatest soup you've ever eaten in your entire life in this tiny village in Uzbekistan. Was the was the breakdown of the car in Germany, was that the worst breakdown, or did you have more? You know what's amazing? And I wrote Daihatsu to tell him, like, your car was unbelievable. We only had, after that, we only had a flat tire in Mongolia. This wow. thing, we didn't, we didn't give it an oil change, 9,000 miles. We... It started every morning. It was some days were over 120 degrees in the sun. This thing just went. This Japanese little city car, Mike, <laughs> just went. Um, That's great. yeah. It was it was it was really something. And I would say I had a friend who went on it. Like she says, the price of admission is worth Western Mongolia, like by itself. Like it, it really was a lunar Martian kind of visual landscape that is is very hard to kind of. Uh, for me, it was very hard to uh, find an equal for, for, the, for the visual experience. And that's just, you're basically just on dirt tendrils going through the step, you know, out there. There's no real road. So finally um, you get, so 35 days of this. Yep. Was it like a month of, was it July, August, that kind of thing? It was, yeah, we left July 12th, I think it was, something like that, July 12th. Okay, so yep. you get to the end point. Yeah. The three of you. Yeah. And was there a situation where you were still getting along or uh, did you have fights yes. along the way? We had, there was one big one. Well, the, 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 the argumentative points, the heavy argumentative points were uh, hap- it, it, the ones that happened often came around navigation. Brooke just, she wasn't the best navigator. I think she was also sometimes disinterested, but sometimes, you know, the person sitting shotgun would kind of have to navigate. And when traveling like this, there was always three steps to getting somewhere. There was arriving in the city, which is step one, but then steps two and three are the maddening points of where are we staying and how the hell do we get there and where do we park? And those became the, you know, we're 13 hours driving. Now we're in this town and we're still driving for another hour because we can't find the place or we don't know where we're allowed to park our cars. And so those would always become testy because we'd be there later than we wanted to be. And we're just like, oh, my God, we're so close to exhaling um, that we'll be fine. The big kind of emotional um, kind of, I guess, the, the, the most distance we all had emotionally was at the Kazakh-Russian border where Brooke was just kind of driving a little too fast. And, and Greg kind of said something snippy and she kind of lost it because it, at times it did feel like a two against one. Greg and I were seven years older than Brooke. We knew each other longer than Brooks. So I think she felt at times that we were ganging, ganging up on her if we disagreed right. or, you know, that kind of, I did, I did my best not to, but you know, um, maybe she was sensitive at the time. So we had a really just tough day at the border. She wasn't talking to either of us. We got stuck in the mud. We, there's mosquitoes everywhere. And it was just, you know, we just had to like kind of keep it through. And then at night around our fire, I just kind of was like, Hey, we had a bad, you know, and I kind of used my consulting and, coaching skills to kind of be like, it's okay. We had a bad day, but let's not take it in tomorrow. So let's, let's lay it on on the table. Like, how's everybody feel? And, you know, and then we, we got through it and realized like, you know, I lost 17 pounds in 35 days and I don't really have a frame to lose 17 pounds. So it's like, you're not eating enough. The car had no air conditioning. It's always too hot outside. So, you know, you're just kind of, you're frazzled, you're frazzled a little bit. I think I think what was an amazing experience in Mongolia as we were driving east towards Ulaanbaatar, there was this feeling of, holy shit, we are in the, uh, you know, we are in the biggest wilderness we could ever imagine. And yet it's going to be over. It's going to end. Like, we want it to end. We want to get there. That's the whole goal. And it was this 
balance of weight, but we want to hold on to the wilderness. We don't want it to be over yet. We want it to be over soon, but not yet. And as soon as we started seeing the day before we got to Ulaanbaatar, we had one more night of camping. We started seeing these giant coach buses and people coming west from Ulaanbaatar out into the, you know, into the steppe. And these buses had like the real adventure, the real Mongolia. And I, and I, you know, literally it was like, no, 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 you people don't know anything. I can't believe I'm on the same road as you. Like, <laughs> this is our adventure. Like you didn't earn it the way we earned it. And there was this kind of like, what does it mean to be an explorer? And, you know, is someone's travel more valid or valuable than someone else's and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, um, you know, you, you, you kind of, you, you kind of go through that. And it was a very, it was a very tough moment being done because when we did get to Alain Batar, it just kind of was like, oh, yes, this thing, you're so tense the whole time. You don't want to break down. You don't want to break down. And then it's done. And it's like, holy shit, it's done. And then now what? So it was this kind of this, this, this no man's land that we got to our destination. But, you know, obviously, as the saying goes, it's really the journey, not the destination. Um, and so, yeah, it was it was completely bittersweet to actually finish. So you get there. Yep. Is there like a banner or something that says finish line? Is there a party? Yes. Yeah. So that, that is a, a very funny question. So we were kind of, we finally saw the, the like haze over, over uh, Ulaanbaatar. You know, half of Mongolia's population lives in Ulaanbaatar. It's a very industrial kind of city. And we finally see this kind of haze on the horizon. We're like, oh my God, we're going to make it. Like, that's it. We, you know, if we were to break down here, now there's pavement again and yada, yada, yada. And then much to our surprise, there was a sign that said like, Mongol rally finish line, they call it like the graveyard here. And we actually drove past it. We barely saw it uh, because our map or our instructions, we had old instructions that said it was going to be in the center of the city. Uh And so it was outside the city. And so all of a sudden there was this, what do you mean? And so we pull in and there's really no one else there. There's other cars there. There's this kind of like finish line stage where, you know, you go, you get to get your photo taken with your car and there's, um, two Mongolian women in, in traditional garb that kind of serve up, um, again, it's like it's uh, fermented mare's milk as like a celebration. But there really is no, you know, and I wrote that. It's like we kind of felt like we came back from the moon and we were going to get a ticker tape parade. And so I said, no, this journey was just for us. You know, there was no, it was a purely personal kind of journey and we needed to get out of it whatever we got out of it. So there was this finish line thing and then there was a, um, they had like uh, each night at the hotel for two weeks, the, the people who run the Mongol rally had like come in, grab a beer, put your name on the finish line thing. But then but then that's it. You know, Greg and I were we bought our tickets in a small town in Mongolia. We bought our plane tickets home because, it was you know, we all had to get back to work. So it was yeah. you had to f- figure out how long you're staying. And so we, we were we flew out the next morning. Oh, um, wow. okay. Yeah. Which was like the biggest arresting kind of sensation of having we we ended up there was like a convoy that we had in mongolia us there was three americans three welsh and three brits who met at the russian mongolian border and chose to kind of drive together because mongolia really is i mean if you're out there on your own and something happens um right you know it might be a while for someone to come so greg and i we kind of had to say goodbye because you know we were going to go to bed and wake up at 5 a.m and we couldn't do it like we just kept talking and talking because I said, as soon as we say goodbye, it means the rally's over. It means this whole magical experience on another plane, you know, on another whatever, you know, be, being modern day, uh, like, like I said, being latter day barbarians is, is over. 
That was um, Brooks already on the plane. See you, suckers. <laughs> see you, see you, sons of bitches. Yeah, I, yeah. Jo- I joke in the book. I'm like, I-, I said, I know I can be hard on Brooke, and I'm sure if she wrote a book, she'd have a chapter that says Greg and Bassam are controlling are controlling bastards, you know, <laughs> blah, 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 blah. But, but no, I think she, she really did. I mean, we were all super close. I mean, at the end, we were extremely close and um, very emotional uh, at the end because you're, you're – uh, there's no – there's no alone time. There's, there's nothing. You're just constantly with these people in this tiny car or in a tent or wherever. And everything you're experiencing is new. And I talk about in the book, while new is exciting, there is an exhaustion of new, you know, new conversations, new places, new signs, new language, new alphabet, new rules. And it's just like, Oh my God, it's tiring. Um, and we had, uh, Oh, to boot, we had a British car. So for basically 90, 9,000 plus miles of the trip, we were driving on the wrong side of the road, you know, so which was added to the stress. Oh, um, oh the Daihatsu was the steering wheel was, was on the right. Was a, on the right, exactly. Oh, so okay. <clears throat> that leads to, you know, entering a roundabout or trying to pass a car on a highway. Then the person riding shotgun has to call whether someone can pass or not. You know, so there, yeah. it was just you were on. You had to be on the whole time while also trying to take in the world. And that's um, tiring. It's tiring. It's tiring. And that's why, you know, I said, you know, I tell people sometimes, like, uh, you know, I would say travel is fun, but transit sucks. You know, sometimes, tra- you know, those, like, layovers yeah. and long things. And getting this was there. a trip. Getting there. And this was a trip that was only about getting there. Uh, so it's kind of an interesting, um, you know, I, it, it's the, I like to say, it's, it's the manufactured grit that we Westerners have to create in our lives to feel like, what are we made of? What's my metal? Um, uh, so, you know, these, these are one of these trips. So everybody just ditches their car at this finish line and walks away? So not everyone. Uh, there weren't that many American teams. I think there were maybe like nine or ten American teams because it's obviously difficult, mostly European teams. Some of the European teams, <clears throat> I mean, rumor has it, they drive up and out north out of Ulaanbaatar into Russia and then drive west. I mean, because the roads are a little bit better. So if you're from Romania or Sweden or Finland, like you theoretically could get your car back. Yeah. Uh, to home or, or wherever. But I think so. We heard stories of a few people doing that. But for the most part, there's a Mongol rally graveyard and you basically you sign over the title of your car. And then the this entity, the adventurous, basically take care of it. The cars all get shipped to, I believe, Lithuania. I believe it was to like a scrapyard um, in Lithuania. So we sang goodbye to our car. <laughs> it was kind of emotional. We kept uh, the license plates and the front decal. So they both got the license plate. I got the, I got the front decal. Um, cause you know, she was like the fourth, the fourth team member. Um, right. <laughs> you know, I, like I never, I never anthropomorphized a, ve- a vehicle before in my life. And then this, this is the first time where, you know, she had a name and it was her and she had, a, you know, emotions and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, again, and, and like I took a, just a, a seven week trip in Europe and, you know, a lot of guys, I'm, I'm kind of like in the space, the headspace you were at, that it's kind of a transitional time, a lot of, uh, you know, questions you want to ask yourself and where am I yeah. going and all this other stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, a lot of times people do that in a solitary thing so they can, you know, calm down a bit. You kind of <laughs> right. did the opposite where you're surrounded by people all the time and you got to be on all the time. Was that a hindrance to like figuring out your path? Maybe you didn't you know, have a lot of time I- to think about your life. I would actually say it's funny out of all the stories that we're talking about now, the majority of the Mongol rally is you sitting quietly in a car. 
Yeah, um, I guess that's true. You know, so for like 15 hours on the road, if you're in the back seat, the windows are open, the music's blasting, you can't even hear, you, you couldn't hear the conversation in the front seat anyway. So there were plenty of times where it was just that look out the window kind of, you know, where you just lose track of time and you think you have a realization of your life in the universe and then you lose it. And you're like, wait, what was that? What, what the hell did I just almost touch? Um, so like, for instance, Kazakhstan was just, I mean, it is so big and we're just driving north every day. And it's like basically Montana. It's like, Mon- you know, Montana's bigger brother. And there's just, what do you do? You know, you're driving for 15 hours. Yeah, we would have dumb conversations at times, but then it would just be, you just sit there with your thoughts and, um, and you'd have that. So yeah, for all the craziness, the majority of the time was you in the car kind of with your thoughts. Yes, there were other people in that car, but um, I, I, I found that I did have plenty of time to kind of get through those, those hurdles, uh, those mental hurdles. Well, not to give away the book or anything like yep. that, but what were the, I mean, can you say some of the answers you came yeah, up with? Yeah, you know, for, for me it was, there was this, this crossroad of, of when I left, you know, on the rally. The questions I was facing was, you know, I had my own business and I was coaching and consulting, but I really started to become a bit um, cynical um, about coaching and maybe even my clients and my kindness was turning into transactional stuff. You know, it would be like, okay, this person paid me and that's rent for this month or it's, you know, and I was, I was losing the joy of kind of having my own company and business. And at the time, this construction company, um, that I had been working for asked me to come back and work full time. And they said they had their own challenges and they wanted me to do, um, the kind of things I was doing, you know, on my own for them. And they said, you know, you can wait, you can go on the rally and and let us know when you come back. So I just kind of had this, I don't know. I, I think it is a bit of that modern day thing we deal with. It's the, do I, you know, Steve jobs told us to ding the universe. Like how much impact do I need to make on this world? How much, is it quote unquote sexy enough for Bassam Tarazi to work for a construction firm? That was the big question that I was kind of like, what are they going to say? What am I going to say about me and my life and, and all that kind of stuff. And so on the rally, there was just a lot of moments where I, I, in those long moments, figured out what my, what my motivations were for a lot of the things I did in life and, and, and questioned myself on a lot of things. And, um, I did come to a major realization when I was in Mongolia, it's when we, we got back and got back on that information highway of the internet and started checking things and CNN and ESPN and email a little more. And then, you know, I started seeing what other people were doing and again, comparing myself to other people and, Oh my God, but they're doing that. What am I doing? Should I be at home? And then I was like, wait, what are you saying? You wish you were home, not on this amazing personal journey, you know, uh, traveling and all that kind of stuff. So I, I realized that, if one is not careful, the comparative society we live in and the always on and the, uh, you know, um, Instagram and, and Inc 500 and entrepreneur magazine and top 40 under 40 and all that kind of stuff. If you, if you don't know your own motivation, if you don't know why you're doing what you're doing, and if you don't believe in what you're doing, life, life is very dangerous. Um, as far as your own emotional kind of sanity. And I think I was just, I had lost sight of why I was doing what I was doing and my motives, weren't solely mine anymore. Um, it was kind of where I fit or where I thought I fit in the greater coaching and consulting community. Okay. Well, that's cool. I mean, so he did get some kind of focus and 
Totally, yeah, so totally. When you get back, I mean, was your relationship part of it? I mean, did you say, I'm ready to settle down? Yeah, I, I think after the rally, I think there was a lot of that, that exhale, like, not I'm done now, but you do a trip like that and you think, okay, I kind of I know where I'm at as a person or, or what I want you know, as a person. So, yeah, I think that was the kind of the great grounder. Um, you know, that kind of put my feet back on the ground and, and stopped being so, uh, I don't want to say just, just vagabondy, but, but, you know, maybe just unwillingness to commit to things and, and all that kind of stuff. So yes, I kind of just got a little bit more into myself and, and realized not into myself in that way, but kind of understood myself a little bit more and, um, you know, came down to, um, Hey, working for this company, is sexy enough and I get to do the kind of things I want to do with a team and, and I can be valued by the people within this company instead of strangers that I've never met um, and all that kind of stuff. And yeah, shortly after, um, you know, a little over a year later, I ended up meeting my wife and I was ready to. I really was ready to. Well, finally, you got any advice for people who are thinking of maybe doing the Mongol rally and what would you tell them? Uh, so my advice would be start preparing uh, early. Um, that would be, that would be one thing, especially if you're, uh, an American team, just because of the difficulty of securing and procuring a car and getting it registered and insured and, and all that kind of stuff. And the visas um, as well. I mean, would you get and the, Yeah. yeah and, and the visas as well, the, the adventurous are pretty good at, uh, helping you walk through that process. Um, they have this company called the visa machine, um, which you basically can, send in your passport to them. And there's this whole application process. You obviously have to do all these applications, but they help help walk you through that. Um, so that part on the, on the logistical front, um, one of the best pieces of advice someone had told me is bring a tent big enough that you can stand in. And I said, well, why? She said, well, when you're hunched over in your car all day and it's pouring rain or the mosquitoes are outside and they'll eat you raw, you want to be able to stretch your legs because... You know, if you're in a tiny, tiny tent, you're kind of scrunched over all the time. That's one of those things that you just hadn't hadn't really. That's a um, good idea. Hadn't really thought about exactly, and it helps because we had this palatial tent. Um, I would say, if you could, I know it's a it's very, very difficult for people. I know for us, we had this ticking clock of when we had to get there because each one of us had, you know, just employers that we kind of had to get to, and it was something we agreed upon at the time. I think it's really good as teammates to before you go on the trip, really understand everybody's like time commitment, because it, uh, we had other teams, we saw other teams break up basically, or kind of split or abandon the rally because of that. One guy had to do it in four weeks. And then a couple of other teammates were like, well, we kind of want to stay in this one city for longer. We want to stay five or six weeks. So that is, that's really important. I think, um, for teammates to kind of understand what is your time frame and, and what are you willing to do um, uh, on that sense. The other thing um, is have a path, but like life, don't worry about if you don't stick exactly to it because things are going to happen. You're going to meet random people on the road and uh, you know, you got to embrace the unknown uh, as much as possible. Um, and then in Mongolia, it's just, you know you're getting close and you want to go faster, but the roads are so diabolical where it's just kind of like slower. We kind of feel that we drove five miles an hour slower than maybe our car could have gone. And I think that did us very, very well on our car. So it's kind of like 
just because you go a little faster, it feels like you're not going to get somewhere uh, any sooner. Where can people find the book and uh, give all your plugs and websites of where people can find you? Absolutely. Uh, so the book is now available for pre-order on Amazon. It's called Borders, Bandits, and Baby Wipes, A Big Adventure in a Tiny Car. Uh, you can find out more about me at www.bassam.com. Uh, Instagram and Twitter is just my name. That's at B-A-S-S-A-M-T-A-R-A-Z-I. There's not many, uh, I would say there's, n- <laughs> there's not many Bassams out there. Uh, so typically if you just type that into Google and get my last name kind of right, you'll be able to find it. Hey man, I appreciate you doing this and it was, uh, I'm glad we got a chance to do this finally. I, I thank you very much, Mike. It was, uh, it was a pleasure. It's always, it's always fun reliving it. And it's so funny. I've told the story, I've written the story out so often that I've seen the words over and over and it kind of is also nice to chat it out and, and, uh, and go through it in that, in that sense. I'll wrap it up in a nice bow then and, and say how all this travel that you've done and what you've seen and all the people you've met, how has it changed you as a person? How are you different from time? We didn't even talk about all the trips you took mm-hmm. before this. Yeah. But how are you different as a person and, and how you see yourself and maybe see where you're from? Yeah. Uh, I think what travel uh, has given me is I, I think it's made me, me more than anything else in my life. I think being in a uh, you know, at baggage claim in Madrid or on a tiny road in India at that moment, you feel like, man, no one knows I exist. And that's a very scary feeling in the sense that if you disappeared, no one would know, but it's a very, very enlivening feeling in the sense that this moment matters and that the next handshake, the next eye contact, you have an effect on a new place and you can start a new story and, and, and learn something new about somebody. So I think Travel kind of always brings back maybe what we touched on before is just that basic thing that we are human. And there are so many moments when you travel on something like a Mongol rally where it is just, okay, I need to convey to this person food, water, and shelter. And at that moment, we're all the same. And it's pretty magical to converse and meet people from foreign countries where you might not know much about them. Your government might tell you they are bad or it's a dangerous place. And those moments where you kind of all start from the same point is a really magical place. So whereas we all we, we love culture because of, um, you know, it personifies our differences. But everyone's culture starts with the, the basics, whether it's community, uh, shelter, wanting the best for their children uh, and a little bit of leisure in their life. So. Travel has kind of taught me to never judge a book by its cover and to never put people in a uh, bucket, whether it's they, whether it's, um, you know, a a certain country is always this or a certain belief system is always that. That's never really the case because that Muslim man is now Ahmed and Ahmed is now a father of three. And this family now took you in to give you food and shelter. So that is who this person is now. It is not a him or a they. Basam, I really appreciate it. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Thank you so you much. Basam Tarazi, everybody. Thank Thanks, Basam. Thank you. Basam.